Hey everybody, welcome to Hit Rewind. This episode will be starting. We're launching into 1996 like a rocket ship. <laughs> That's right, kids. Uh, twirl your mustache. <laughs> and I think it's gonna be a long, long time till we get to 1999. <laughs> Actually, at the rate we're going, maybe. <laughs> well, here's the thing is, I don't really want to go too fast. In the show, because we were discussing, I think a couple months ago, '90s nostalgia is just now starting, like uh, like quite a bit later than we expected. Uh, you know, I expected '90s nostalgia to kick in maybe five years ago, and just in the last year, it's starting to like, okay, people actually start to care about the '90s. We're getting a little burnt out on the '80s, so you know, I don't want to jump into the 2000s quickly because we're not even there with nostalgia yet. Oh yeah. Plus, we try to we try to stay in the in the realm of classic. In classic, the rules generally are it has to be twenty years old in order to be considered a classic. Oh yeah, you could, say, you could also say that for music, it has to be like thirty or older. Yeah, I think it started. I think it started with cars. Like they were considered a classic car if it was twenty years or older. And so, yeah, I just kind of generally count that for everything. That's right, kids. Some 41 is now classic rock. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. And my car is a classic car. It's a, it's a 2004 almost. Oh, wow. Yeah, you're it's really on the corner. Where's, ours is a 2008, so I imagine it's going to get there eventually. But <sighs> so what oh, we plan yeah, on I... doing, we discussed once we – I think we might be able to squeeze out 1998 by the end of this year. Maybe. I mean, 96 and 97, I think you're going to go pretty fast. But um, uh, after that, we're going to pause, and we're going to go way back in time. We're going to grab some movies from the 60s, 70s, the ones we missed in the 80s, and then the ones we missed in the 90s, and that should take up a year or so. And, of course, I plan on slowing down a little bit. That was always the plan is after 10 years. Actually, I said after 10 years I was going to probably quit, but I still love doing this so much. I love talking to my friends about things that we, we mutually enjoy. Oh, absolutely, and then some of the details you have to find out when discussing with friends, and then, of course, having to look it up yourself. Holy, you get mind blown. I'm like, I love this movie even more, or you might hate the movie and you want it to burn in the fire. It gets there. <laughs> I don't think we've ever discussed, well, when we used to do trash cinema, yes, this was a thing. We would, <laughs> we discussed some stinkers. Uh, Captain America, probably, you know, the uh, 1990 Captain America was probably the pits for us. Um, oh, yeah. That's deep. Yeah. That's, that's, that's like seventh level deep. <laughs> that's a garbage dump, bottom layer, greasy deep. Uh, so, we are launching 1996 now, and the first movie of 1996 we are discussing is... Dragonhawk. Kind of Honestly? Yeah, look, I know the special <laughs> effects don't hold up compared to what they look like today. Obviously, 1996 is really, really early in hey let's try to make something that looks organic out of digital i mean we had done it with jurassic park but it was mostly with water you know or, or darkness no these guys had the balls three years later to put this flat out in the light you know and yes some of it doesn't flow as well especially with like the moving of the face right yes the expressions they definitely aren't as you know, smooth. But I will take inventive, creative, special effects with heart put into the character over photorealistic any day. Oh, definitely. Uh, especially with their expressions when, uh, you know, Dennis Quaid's character, 
What's his name? Gawain? Uh, I, I don't even remember now. Bowen? Is Bowen. Bowen. Not Bowie. Bowen. Right. Uh, well, it, it's still, well, I was thinking of like one of Arthur King Arthur's knights, which, of course, this movie kind of takes place in that realm. Yeah. Because they are mentioned. Like, Arthurian legends were like over a hundred years ago. You know, dragons exist. And uh, yeah, the expressions on the dragon's face, voiced by Sean Connery, beautifully, no less. Yeah, you can definitely tell, like, you can see his anger, you can see the pain, knowing that he was the last one. And yeah, that's what kind of makes this movie hold up for me. And it's a, again, it's a fun old adventure, you know, taking out a tyrant, you know, there's betrayal. And honestly, what I really enjoy, like, there's no love story. They don't have to put in a romance or love element. No, and it's it it's actually, so well. I forgot that it was a comedy. And basically, oh, really? okay, so in 1971, there was a comedy with um, James Garner and Lou Gossett Jr. called Skin Game, where Lou Gossett Jr. would pretend to be a slave that escaped, and then James Garner would uh, be the guy who, you know, the bounty hunter or whatever, and would turn him in for the bounty, and then once they collected the money, he would get him, you know, whatever, he would get him to escape, and then he would just go from town to town pulling the scam, and um, so this kind of pulls a little bit of that. He said he was influenced by that because, you know, that he goes from town to town pretending to kill the dragon, collecting the money, and then yes. taking off. So that's part of it. Plus, um, he wanted to tell a classic, like, Arthurian tale. And it's so interesting that this came out at a time when Sword and Sorcery was deader than dead. It had been eight years since the last studio Sword and Sorcery movie, and that was Willow. And it would be... Uh, I want to say it was four years until the Dragon Dungeons and Dragons movie would come out, and this I'm sure got greenlit because hey, we can do this new groundbreaking visual effects stuff, and you know we can bring sword and sorcery into a new age. And the studio was like, okay, cool. Um, so pre-production is different than what they had originally planned. The original director was Patrick Reed Johnson. He was the director who had done Spaced Invaders. I don't know if you've ever seen that comedy with. Yes. Okay, so that was his first one. I know him from doing Angus right before this, which I absolutely adore. It's a movie that makes me cry every time I see it. Um, but they didn't think that he was experienced enough to handle it, which is so weird because he worked for ILM. He worked for Lucas on a lot of movies during the 80s. I mean, this guy had experience with special effects. And he had cast Liam Neeson as Bowen. Not. Not Dennis Quaid. And they didn't think... At the time, they said they didn't think he could be an action star because the only thing he had done at that point was Dragonheart. Or, not Dragonheart, I'm sorry, I'm being stupid. Darkman. What? Yeah, and they said Liam Neeson can't be an action star, which is fucking hilarious to me. So, they oh, decided... Yes, definitely. To, yeah, so they, they, they auditioned and they sent offers out to a tons of people and they finally got Dennis Quaid, who really, really needed this movie badly because he had been cut off of so many flops, but... He had some heat on him because that Wyatt Earp movie, you know, with Sean Connery? Yes. Or with, um, yeah, God, I'm having a day, uh, Kevin Costner. Yes, that one. Yeah, he played uh, Doc Holliday. Dude, that movie flopping, he had a great performance. It's not his performance that's the problem. Yeah. And and so he had a little bit of buzz going around, so that helped him get this. And I think he does a really fine job. I'm, I'm truly entertained. He's very funny. See, that's one thing I can't see is Liam Neeson being this kind of funny he's usually when he tries to be funny it's he's funny because he knows he's not funny do you know what i mean like a dry sense of humor yes 
Um, yes, absolutely. I've never seen Liam Neeson really have like chemistry, like this kind of chemistry with. Well, <laughs> he is also playing off of something that doesn't exist. I wonder how they did it back <laughs> in the day, because Sean Connery is not going to go on the set in a suit. They must have had somebody else standing there reciting the lines with him, and they just like you know wiped him out with effects. Uh, probably you'd have to think. I mean, especially because you know doing a voice acting job for the dragon or some. Uh, animated uh, character they would have to be in a separate screen but honestly it would make sense if you know like what they did with Lord of the Rings they would have actual the actual actors come on set just like with um, uh, Return of the King when Ian McKellen was actually you know saying his lines to Christopher Lee so I'm pretty sure that that's what might have happened yeah I saw this at the drive-in, and I want to say it was with Twister. I like to remember what I saw movies with, but I am not 100% certain. By the way, I always say that I've only seen one movie in the theaters three times, and that was Batman 1989. I just realized I've seen Twister three times now, twice at the drive-in. <laughs> Does that count? That counts, right? <laughs> yes, that counts. Okay. That definitely counts. Mm, oh, man. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Especially with, the, especially with like everybody pretty much like, you know, the big car craze. Everybody just hanging out in their car, eating in their car, all the drive-ins and dives and all that. So, yeah. I mean, of course, this is when it was starting. To, it was just really dying out, and it was just very, very limited in where you could see a drive-in. Yeah, we have one here in town, actually, but what I don't like is they don't show films. They don't show official hard, you know, like hard copies sent by the studio. They literally wow. just, they just pop in a Blu-ray. We went and saw Twister last summer, and... Uh, um, at the end of the movie, it just went right to the screen, uh, you know, like the DVD menu, and I was like, "You set up!" Oh. <laughs> Makes you wonder if they're even paying to show it. Honestly, I don't know. The right. um, I mean, go ahead. well, technically, because it's their copy and they're allowed to show it. So yeah, that could be it. Well, you but... you still have to pay for it though. You still have to give the studio some other money from the ticket. So maybe they did that. Yeah, I'm pretty sure they had to. Okay, the um. Yeah, so I think I think Dragonheart is a, a very interesting, funny, and also God, it has such a momentous end. I mean, I'm just like incredibly powerful. Like, first off, Day of the Thulis is a sleazy weasel. Even the person they cast, yes. the person they cast as him as a child is just a sleazy weasel. <laughs> and oh God, yes. He said, I mean, he plucks out that guy's eyes, and they're like, "Oh, let him go. He's been here for twenty years, suffering. Okay, I'll free him." <laughs> you know, shoots with a bullet. Death is a release, not a punishment. Yeah, what a fucking. Prick. I know. Well, he's a ginger. How could they have not known? Even fucking Sean Connery character knew he was a piece of shit, and he was hoping he. <laughs> Could save him, but no. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> but I, I think it's a really magical film, and I, I think it uh, it's an anomaly in, in the oasis of sword source movies. Now, this is a franchise. I don't think a lot of people realize there's like five more of these that went straight to video. I've only seen a little bit of the second one, and the visual effects were insanely bad. Like they weren't even clever, like well done, but you know, not visually. Um, what do I say? Uh, uh, realistic, photorealistic. I was like, oh, this is 2000 direct-to-video special effects. I'm, I'm, I'm good. But I don't know. <laughs> something something about it, though, it must have some phenomenon following because how do you get five more direct-to-video sequels? Seriously. Yeah, no, that's ridiculous. Um, I do, like I said, I remember seeing a trailer uh, of, a sec of the second movie, like, on a home video, but that was about it. Yeah. And, I... yeah, quite frankly, that score in the trailer, or no, the one that plays at the end... Uh, at the end of the movie, I'm like, that's been used in so many trailers. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was going to say, too. from Milan. 
Well, I think it's funny is, so the director of this is Rob Cohen, and his first directorial effort was Dragon, the Bruce Lee story, um, which that one also had a score that was used in a million trailers. It's so interesting to me how he... I mean, do you literally think they said, oh, Dragon, uh, we're looking for a new director. Let's just, you know, Dragonheart, uh, Dragon, yeah, yeah, let's put those two together. <laughs> he understands dragons. He might have been born in the year of the dragon, man. And, of course, Rob <laughs> Cohen is the guy who would end up doing, you know, Fast and the Furious and Triple X. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's starring um, Vin Diesel. Yeah. The, uh, the next film is... Twister. And you, it's a twister, it's a twister, but far much worse. I think it's it is truly bizarre though that I've seen this twice at a drive-in and there's that scene where the, so I'm at a drive-in watching a movie filming at a drive-in where they're watching a movie that's hit by a tornado. Exactly. That's a Honestly, weird picture and picture meta shit. Oh my gosh! As a child, yes, this was a traumatizing movie. You no, know, just hearing the word uh, tornado or something like that, I think it really made it that much more intense. But of course, that's the Hollywood effect. Yeah, well, I mean, have you experienced tornadoes? No, no, okay. I have not, and I don't want to. It's it's completely normal around here, tornadoes, but I, I have not personally experienced one uh, that got really close. The closest we had was about a month ago, I think, about 15 miles away, I think. Um, but I had friends. When this movie came out, all of a sudden, all my friends became like tornado hunters, and they would go around filming it on these cameras or whatever, and, and they would get way too close. It was terrifying. And I want to blame this movie for them wanting to go hunt down fucking tornadoes. Oh, yeah. Honestly, I mean, the way it keeps us grounded, though, with, uh, you know, Bill Paxton's uh, aspect, you know, just try, he's just trying to divorce, he's just trying to get his uh, ex-wife, Helen Hunts, to sign some divorce papers, and then he just gets roped back in the saddle throughout it all, while his current wife, or his current fiance, uh, Jamie Gertz. Yes. She's going, <laughs> especially that one particular scene after they just get through a tornado and that thing just lands right in front of her. <laughs> she is freaking out, and it's funny. Honestly, it's funny to see. And then you've got someone like Philip Seymour Hoffman coming in, just like kind of like going, "Oh my God, you just went, you just survived that." Yeah. Extreme. This is loaded to the gills with like a well-known cast of character actors and. Um, What's interesting is Bill Paxton was a character actor until this movie. And then his career completely changed. I don't know if I prefer... I, I gotta say, I kind of prefer the version of him before this. He seemed like he was more like in these wild and interesting characters. And after this, he kind of became a bland lead. And I don't know if that's... I mean, maybe he was tired of playing supporting roles and he wanted to be a star. But I, I, I find his earlier work more interesting. Hands down, his earlier work was a lot more better. Um, yeah, in this lead, no, I didn't find him too boring. No, this is probably his best of his leading roles. But then, like, after this, what he did, uh, Mighty Joe Young and the Thunderbirds. Uh, well, there's that one where he's a murderer, though. They believe that people are possessed of, God, what is that called? There's demons inside of him, and he has his two sons along to help. Frailty. Frailty. Have you seen this? Sounds awfully familiar. Yeah, it's a bonkers ass movie that he uh, directed. Um, so yeah, this was a phenomenon at the time. This summer was dominated by two uh, disaster films, and it just brought it back. I mean, disaster movies were a phenomenon in the '70s. Of course, the big ones being 
that's funny. I have to think about it. The two big ones that launched it were really close together, Towering Inferno and Poseidon Adventure. And then after that, you would get diminishing returns at the box office and, you know, as a good movie. Um, and then we had Twister and Independence Day. And then after that, we would get a lot of disaster movies with less, you know, like positive results. Because we had the two volcano movies. Uh, we had uh, two... Um, asteroid movies we had uh hard rain firestorm stuff like that so it's just funny how like those two movies right together really relaunched disaster films again <laughs> yeah. oh man honestly as far as disaster films like again i'd only see the reruns on tv that my parents would be watching yeah oh, they grew up with. and we're gonna go back we're going when we discuss 70s movies we're definitely going to be going into some of those old classics because i've lit i've not seen any of them i don't think um, uh, but I was thinking that also there was the TV movie knockoffs that around this time that they were doing. You know how the way it is with like Asylum, where you see the directed video version, where like Snakes on a Plane came out, and then after that it was Snakes <laughs> on a Train, you know, stuff like that bullshit. Um, oh God, yes. Uh, Battle of Los Angeles, then it would be uh, the Los Angeles Alien Battle or something, or Alien versus Hunter versus you know instead of Alien versus Predator. Well, yeah. Um, Fox aired Tornado with Bruce Campbell and Ernie Hudson. And it aired right as this was coming out, and boy, the budget on that one was nowhere near as good as Twister. Holy shit, it looks bad. <laughs> it's like, I love you, Bruce Campbell and Ernie, but damn, man, what were you thinking? Yeah, the tornado looks so bad. It looks like it's like someone took a pencil and just drew the tornado instead of using CG effects. <laughs> yeah. I remember, I think one time, I think it was in sixth or seventh grade, like during testing break, you know, one that uh, the, the movie that they were watching, they're letting us watch to, you know, for entertainment because there was no nothing on the curriculum for us to study or go over. Was Twister, and I got extra credit for what movie they were watching uh, at the drive-in. Oh yeah, what was it? The Shining. Ah, and I think I would remember that since I just saw it last year. That's so interesting. Uh, yeah, this is oh, one yeah. of the first in a long time where two studios got together to share a budget, which was done with Disney and Paramount. They did Popeye and Dragon Slayer together. And so what would happen is, I think, if I remember correctly, Disney would make the whole thing and then Paramount would split the box office receipts with them uh, worldwide. Whereas this one is literally, hey, you pay half the budget uh, and then you pay the other half or whatever and then you get international rights and you get domestic rights, which would be Mexico, you know, anything in the, in the, the North American rights. And yeah, usually if you got international rights, they'll usually put up more than fifty percent. I believe it was, I want to say it was Touchstone. It had to have been Warner Brothers. Um, if they were showing The Shining, I think it was Universal and Warner Brothers did this one, and then that would happen a few more times through the years where you would see two companies going in together to produce a movie, which is weird because usually studios are beating the shit out of each other for <laughs> studio rights. <laughs> Oh my god, yeah. I mean, just like that whole, like, Spider-Man issue. Uh, oh, yeah, after, yeah, yeah. Uh, after Far From Home. You know, because Sony, you know, Marvel wanted a little bit more money because they were only getting 5% from, like, um, you know, uh, as far as the movie release and the movie, pl- uh, and the movie playing, but, of course, they had, like, uh, merchandising and whatnot and creative control. Yeah. You know, um... This movie, in a way, led to Van Halen falling apart. Did you know that? Shut up. What? So the song 
uh, Humans Being, which was the hit off of the soundtrack. Um, at the time this came out, uh, Van Halen wanted to put together a greatest hits soundtrack or a greatest hits album to include this song because they didn't have anywhere to, to put it. They didn't have an album ready. So they're like, well, let's put a greatest hits collection together and let's throw this on there. And Sammy Hagar's like, we're not at the point where we're a greatest hits band. We're still red hot. And they're like, no, no, we're going to do this anyway. He goes, no, we are not a classic rock catalog, you know, kind of band yet. We're still current and, and, and you know, irrelevant. And they insisted, and he goes, well, fuck you guys. Especially when he found out that for the greatest hits collection that they brought David Lee Roth back. <laughs> and someone, I can't remember if there was a confusion if he thought that they were bringing David Lee Roth back permanently or not. But that led to Sammy quitting. And then when they got Dave on stage at the MTV Music Awards, it was a fucking nightmare. Seriously, go to YouTube, watch the clip of David Lee Roth hogging the spotlight and pissing everybody off. And then they were stuck with no singer. They had nobody left. And then they went with a new guy from the Extreme Band. And uh, boy, that album is terrible. Van Halen 3 from 1998. Holy shit, that's bad. Okay, good. Uh, that I won't look up. Yeah. I it, mean, quite, to be fair, honestly, they were better with Roth than they were with uh, Hagar. You know, Hagar may have, had, may have gotten some like very big hits and some like number ones. But it just wasn't the same. Well, I mean, the first one is a party band, because and they, and they were very eclectic and retro with some of the sounds that they would choose uh, when it was David Lee Roth, because he was a huge fan of all kinds of music. And Sammy was a straightforward rocker. And he was, um, I think, more mainstream. He appealed to women, uh, especially with the ballads, the did. power ballads. And, you know, Foreign Lawful Color Knowledge, I think, is their best album. Um, 1991. It's just it's such a wonderfully deep progressive album for Van Halen. So I'm fine with Sammy, but I do sometimes just like I want to have fun and listen to the crazy wild David Lee Roth years, you know. Oh, absolutely for sure. We are so far off. Yeah, but going back, it's like they could have just released that as a single with the movie. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's been done before. They, yeah, I was gonna say they could have made a lot of money just selling the single, but "Humans Being" is a very unusual song because the beginning sounds very alternative. It doesn't sound like Van Halen until it kicks into the chorus and then the guitar solo. Okay, now okay, but I mean, after knowing that, I'm kind of mad at this movie now. Damn it! Look what you did Twister. <laughs> you, you only wrecked Holmes, but you wrecked Van Halen. So I'm sure you saw that Twisters is coming. <laughs> Wait, which one? The sequel? Yeah, the sequel comes out, I think, uh, at the end of this year or early ne- probably early next year. Well, depending on the writer's strike, we'll see. Yeah, well, if the script's already done. But I think mm-hmm. there, is, there is another sequel to Twisters. For some reason, it's just not called that, but it is from New Line Cinema. It has the same setup. It's a fucking great little movie. It's called Into the Storm. Huh. Yeah. I'll have to look into that one. Yeah, it's in the voodoo. It made like 50 or $60 million. It's all, I mean, it's to the T what a sequel to Twister should be, just with a whole new cast. The problem was, since Twister is a movie that's owned by two different studios, you have to get them to agree. And that's like what happened with Roger Rabbit. You couldn't get Disney and all the other companies, uh, Spielberg and stuff like that, to all agree. So then we end up with that fucking weird show, Bonkers. Mm. Yeah. Although I did enjoy Bonkers. <laughs> um, what is our next film? <laughs> okay, next film. Oh, gosh. Here, let me get my list. Oh, yes. Uh, Happy Gilmore. 
God, this is such a light year leap in audience appeal from Billy Madison. Billy Madison is fucking punk. It is punk rock view. I mean, this is Billy Madison. I don't. I don't know why we didn't discuss it. Did we discuss it on the last? Yeah, we discussed it on a previous episode. Yes. Well, I'm watching it right now, and I forgot that this is like the groundwork that you see with Tim and Eric and the Eric Andre show. You know, uh, uh, you you should what's that Netflix show? Uh, you should probably leave or whatever it is with Tim Robinson. Have you seen this? Oh my gosh, why am I blanking? It's a sketch show on Netflix. Well, whatever it is, I feel like the groundwork that we're seeing the last 10 years of like weird alt comedy, like really weird alt comedy, is all there in Billy Madison. And then Happy Gilmore seems to be like, hey, that was me just goofing around, having fun. Let's make something that'll appeal to the mainstream audience, that'll please the studio, and my mom will love it. I mean, absolutely adores Happy Gilmore. He's, he's so adorable. oh god yes i know especially you know coming from the viewpoint that he lost most of his parents and he's living with his grandma and you know he actually is you know doing something noble he's trying to pay his uh pay off his grandma's debts and get their house back and yes he has his anger issues and he's kind of like uh uh like a frat boy kind of thing still he's got a little bit of that flavor going but he's so sweet and he has heart and determination frustration that you really like connect to and absolutely this kind of lays the groundwork for a lot of his characters for like the next decade if for just frustrated nice guys but who can't contain their anger sometimes oh yeah and then there's ones who bottle their anger to the point where they have to let it out like in anger management or or what is it uh punch drunk love i think is the perfect distillation of that character Oh, yes, that's when he was going for more uh, drama aspect. Yeah. Getting a little more serious, too. And, and but, ha- yeah. But, ha- Happy Gil- but Happy Gilmore is infused with that weird sense of humor, just not as bizarre. Like, there's just these little touches that are just so strange that would become a signature for him. Uh, no, definitely, yeah. There was some bit of bizarreness, especially when he gets in a fight with Bob Barker yeah. on a celebrity golf God damn it, Bob Barker must have had a blast doing that. <laughs> <laughs> They're just beating the shit out of each other, and then, you know, you think Bob Barker's down, and then he gets back up and knocks down Happy Gilmore. Yeah, and then he calls him a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. Oh, man. Um, I told you, of course, that I ran into uh, Chris McDonald at a film festival back in, like, 2007 or 2008. I told you this, right? I believe you did, yes. Yeah, and he did the shooter run. I said hi to him because I was shocked because I was going into the the area where they were giving out the awards or whatever, and I was the first one in because everybody was out in the hallway schmoozing. My sister's right behind me. Oh, no, no. Mindy went to go get my mom, but she was in another section, so I walked right into the dining hall just to get a table, and he comes around, and I go, oh, hi. Like, I was shocked. He goes, <laughs> with his fingers or whatever, <laughs> winks, and I go, and I just go, thanks. <laughs> like of course like as far as what what got what may have gotten him uh definitely a little no, no, uh, more notoriety especially in comedy uh yeah like that's one of his roles that you could say was like his biggest um Exposure. Yeah, before this, he was doing a lot of dramas, and and it's like he had done Thelma and Louise, uh, yes. Term- Terminal Velocity. He did a really interesting yes. but small part in a movie called Road Racers with Christopher Lambert, uh, Best of the Best Three. So he was doing like serious but kind of lower end movies, 
And then this kind of changed everything because if you look at his filmography for like the next six years or, or maybe more, he's doing these kind of roles. Yes, is it a gimme? Sure, but when you've been in the film industry for that long, you take the jobs that'll pay that you don't have to audition for. You know, it's like, hey, all right, cool. Yeah, no, absolutely. And he plays those parts so damn well. You can't help but enjoy it. I well, mean, yeah, I forgot there's Dutch. Dutch is somewhere in there where he's only in it for a couple minutes, but he plays like us Shooter McGavin kind of jackass. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And you got to, like, honestly, you love him for it. Like, that's how you know that particular actor. Yeah, speaking of, <laughs> you jackass! <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Oh, no, he was great. Oh, my God. How many movies have I seen him in before that? Well, he was the one guy from SCTV that kind of got away. Um, Joe Flaherty is, the out of the group, he's kind of the one that didn't break out as a movie star. You know, if you look at his filmography, he was still staying in Canada. I mean, this was shot in Canada. Um, the only thing that he really did in oh, America, shit. the only thing he really did in America, I think if I remember correctly, was Freaks and Geeks. Oh, you're right, yes. Oh, it, wasn't he also uh, John Cusack's dad in Better Off Dead? Let me see. Oh, okay, so I'm wrong here. No, no, no. He did a bunch of American movies, but he must have done it quickly. So uh, he's in 1941, uh, Used Cars, uh, One Crazy Summer is what you're thinking of. That was, uh, uh, let's see what else. Um, Back to the Future 2, of course, he does like a one-day role. But he was in a TV show for like four years, I remember, based on a computer game called Maniac Mansion, which nobody remembers. <laughs> Wow, he really didn't yeah, act much. No. He retired basically in 2004. That's wild to me. Yeah, no, gosh. I mean, you, you feel like that's a little too soon. I mean, honestly, I would like to see him come out of retirement in a yeah. comedy. Well, he's a teacher now. It says at Humbard University teaching comedy writing. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, so this is the first collaboration between uh, Adam Sandler and Dennis Dugan. I think they end up doing like four or five movies together. And he w he was always coming back to the uh, Happy Madison family to do movies. Um, he's the guy who basically runs the commission, you know, the golf commission, once Happy removed from the uh, the uh, yeah. tournament. Um, yes. I, I think this is the first time we see Alan Covert, who is, of course, a regular Happy Gil or uh, Happy Madison uh, collaborator, and I think he's like his right hand man when it comes to producing and writing. Oh, absolutely! You can tell like they're just like the best of friends. Like anybody within his within his movies, uh, whatever small he'll have them, no matter what, no matter how small of a part, he'll have them there. Yeah. They're his group. Uh, we have a small cameo from uh, Ben Stiller as a sadistic <laughs> the orderly. Yes, oh my god. A fucking mustache. <laughs> it's like, oh, your finger's hurt? Well, now your back's gonna hurt because you just pulled its landscaping duty. <laughs> <laughs> he says it's so nice. <laughs> well, I know. It, do you remember mm. there was a time when um, Ben Stiller was doing character work before he broke out with uh, something about Mary he was just doing small character roles and lots of like heavyweights and stuff like that. Of course, the Ben Stiller show. Yes, I, I kind of thought he was that. more. I thought he was more interesting before he broke big with you know all the you know the massive blockbusters. Oh, absolutely! And honestly, he brought that back though when it when it came to Tropic Thunder or Zoolander, even the um. I think oh, the, Julie Bowen. Yeah, this is, I think the first time we had seen Julie Bowen. Um, 
She's fine. She's, I mean, like a lot of Adam Sandler movies, they gave, especially early on, it seems like they didn't give women a lot to work with. They're just kind of a bland. But she puts her own spin on the character. I, I enjoyed it. Absolutely. And let's not forget, we cannot forget Carl Weathers. Thank you. That's what I was leading up to. Holy fucking shit. And I've said it before, and I'll say it again. How is this man not an A-lister? I love Carl Weathers. And I, I just, like, look... <laughs> How is it after all those Rocky movies made a, a buttload of money that he didn't get offered other studio films? Literally, after Rocky Three ended, he was doing TV shows and movies. Called I think one called Fortune Dane, and then he got Predator uh, in '87, and uh, you know that helped him get Action Jackson. But after those two movies, straight back to TV again. This guy can sing. He can play piano. Uh, I mean, I'm pretty sure he can play piano if unless it's really good editing. I was trying to watch. He's, yeah, no. He's funny. He's an action guy. I mean, he's handsome. How the fuck? <laughs> I know, but I love I love his involvement in the Mandalorian series. He even directed a few episodes. Yeah, he's really good in that. Um, love him, dude. He, honestly, he is the reason I enjoyed the Rocky the most. I mean, yeah, growing up, you know, it's Sylvester Stallone. He's a big action hero, but especially the Rocky movies he was in. Damn, man, he lit that shit up. He did, and um. I can't remember what I was going to say. Oh, okay. So here's one thing I want to. I'm curious about is when I mean the movie wasn't old enough at the time, but I was uh, helping. Well, I was a co-manager. What do you call it? Assistant manager of a movie theater, and it was coming up to the Pebble Beach uh, Pro Am, and of course that takes over the whole Monterey Peninsula, and all the movie theaters would show a golf film. And I said, why aren't why nobody's showing Happy Gilmore? You got to show Happy Gilmore. And the owner of the theater was like, why would I? book us a piece of shit like that and i was like wow dude wow the audacity yeah but i'm like you're ignoring a whole generation of people who are just getting into golf or could be getting into golf because of you know of this movie i mean we had a whole new generation of people getting interested in golf because of tiger woods and there's only so many you have tin cup you have uh caddyshack and what else nothing Wait, what was that one with uh, Matt Damon? Oh, yeah, Bagger Vance. What we ended up booking was, um, and it's not bad, it's a movie with, uh, what's that guy that was in Passion of the Christ, the crazy fucker? Not Jim Caviezel. Yes, Jim Caviezel was in a movie called Bobby Jones, and it's not bad. It's it's a it's a dramatic movie uh, set in the 1920s about one of the early golfers who refused to go pro, even though he was like one of the greatest ever. Not bad, but I think Happy Gilmore would have brought in more money. Oh, definitely. Um, all right. Down. Anything else you want to say about this movie before we go? Uh, it is an Adam Sandler classic, and I will always love it. Oh, there's one thing that always gets me at the beginning. <laughs> you know, his girlfriend's leaving him, leaving the apartment because you know she just got sick and tired of him, just kind of. You know, not moving on with his life from hockey or anything. Uh-huh. And then he's like going back and forth on the intercom, and then all of a sudden he's, he realizes he's talking to an elder lady, and then she comes up to his room. <laughs> I wanna kiss you all over, over and over, <laughs> and over again. Tonight <laughs> is in. <laughs> and then there's the endless love scene. Oh, oh gosh. yeah. Um, there's another. Like, we watch this all the time because uh, a bunch of my friends were golfers. I never got into golf. I just like going to the driving range. I don't want to chase after the ball. But um, 
there was a couple lines for us we would always say to each other if we saw a fancy car we would always go must be Burt Reynolds or some shit (laughs) 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 or uh, stop laughing clown you're gonna die clown that's it you're too good for your home are you too good for your home (laughs) no Oh gosh! Whenever I go uh, mini golfing, that's what. If I miss, that's what I always end up saying. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, god, it's so quotable. Those first few uh, Adam Sandler movies are so insanely quotable. Um, oh, absolutely! I couldn't tell you anything from any of his movies after like Wedding Singer that was quotable. Maybe Little Nicky. <laughs> that's about it. <laughs> um, oh god! <laughs> what is? I can't wait to get to Little Nicky. Little Nicky was a massive bomb that nearly destroyed his career, but I think it's it's so weird and and, and my kind of thing. It's more punk rock like uh, Billy Madison, but with an eighty million dollar budget. The pressure is on. Yes. Oh god. Yes, that's actually one of my favorite, if not my favorite. Um, Adam Sandler movie right behind Wedding Singer actually Hi Chicago is awesome <laughs> <laughs> alright what oh is our gosh. next movie next movie of course SNL alum uh, Black Sheep with Chris Farley and David Spade alright I'm walking out of the room for this one go ahead no, uh, <laughs> no. Hey, don't go. I, I here, okay so this is what I told myself to make me make it through the movie I remember being in the theater being pretty disappointed um and seeing it later on video, we all talked shit about it. And I think it kind of hurt Chris Farley's career. Yeah, he made a lot of money off of uh, Beverly Hills Ninja. I don't think it's very good. Um, but where it works for Black Sheep, if you take it... The problem is, I think, is because it came so close to Tommy Boy. I mean, literally the next year. I think less than a year. And it was rushed into production. And it's the same guys, even the same writer. And you expect it to be more heartfelt and better structured than it is. But if you look at Black Sheep, not as a, a like a pairing with Tommy Boy, but as an homage to like old animated films, like um, um, like Tom and Jerry or a Wile E. Coyote, where it's just like vignettes and it's just disaster after disaster, gag, 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 then it's easier to handle. It's not necessarily there for structure, like advancing of the plot. It's mostly them just set up and pay off with these gags. Pretty much, yes. I was about to explain that. Personally, growing up with it and loving Chris Farley, uh, yeah, no, that's exactly what I felt like. It felt like very cartoonish, especially rolling down the hill for so long. Oh, God, The Rock. <laughs> the Rock sequence is an all-timer, though. I gotta say, as, as, oh, yeah. as uh, messy as this movie is, that is a fucking hilarious Wile E. Coyote gag. Oh, definitely. No, I love, or the part with the bat flying around. Oh, God. <laughs> they were just smacking the shit out of him with a stick. <laughs> Can we try my plan now? The one joke <laughs> I think that doesn't work that is a flat-out dud <laughs> is the one where uh, the fridge falls against him. That's funny. But when he talks about there's pudding, a chocolate pudding in my pants, how can he tell? He can't look down. He literally cannot look down to see his chocolate pudding. <laughs> and I was like, but that's that's me being trying to be logical with the joke. I was like, just slam him up against the fridge and have him make a funny sound. You're good. <laughs> yeah, and then of course David Spade's like, we didn't have chocolate pudding in there, man. Yeah, and uh, the Gary Busey thing is a, a fucking wild card. I bet you they were on a set with him and they didn't know what the fuck was gonna come out of that man's mouth. Like they were, I, they looked like they were literally terrified of Gary Busey. 
Oh, I know. Even David Spade, even in that one scene, I felt like that terror was real. I'm yeah. Like, something happened. Before, something happened to prep for the scene, man. Yeah. There's something. <laughs> this is at the point where Gary Busey is no longer like the Gary Busey we love from like Point Break and stuff like that. Like, he's fucking insane now. <laughs> oh God. I mean, of course, with age, sadly, that can. Well, he had that uh, weird thing. I don't remember what year it was. Well, he was in a horrible car ac- or a motorcycle accident where he cracked his skull and damaged his brain. That didn't help. And then they found uh, like a they found like a tumor in his brain too, and they had to remove that. So that can't you know. So whatever it was, I think he just had some sort of brain damage. It just he just wasn't the same. But I heard that he was really crazy and weird in the first place. So uh. yeah, if anything, if anything, that made it even more so. He Is probably Tim- was borderline stable, but. Tim Matheson, yeah, yeah, sorry. Um, Tim Matheson seems like he is an SNL guy who's not an SNL guy. He's just so good at being the straight man to so many SNL guys. You got Jim Belushi, Chevy Chase, Chris Farley, and a few others to his career. And he's, I really, really like Tim Matheson. It's just they never really found a lot of work for him that that, that fit. Sadly, no. I mean, regardless of like, you know how many movies I could see him in and who he bounced off of. Yeah, no, he, again, he just couldn't get the right project. I did see him, I think, in Jumanji with uh, Dwayne Johnson that came out a few years ago. He was uh, Colin Hanks' dad. Okay, I didn't know that. I knew he directed for a while, and I know he's the one who saved uh, National Lampoon. They were going out of business. They were bankrupt in 1988 or 89, and he bought them and kept them afloat until he could find another buyer. Right, yeah, no, so definitely give him a lot of credit. Uh, I am looking... Oh, the very Brady sequel. I mean, yes, I think when he is a support, he can fucking sell, but he is... You've seen the sequel, right? Yes, I love both those movies. I'm (laughs) tripping with the Bradys. Oh, God, that's right. You know, oh, gosh, Alice put the shrooms in his bag in his pasta. Oh my god, it's so fucking funny. Um, oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I, like I said, I don't think this is the greatest movie of the planet, but I don't hate it as much as I used to. Um, because I was, I remember walking out there just being so, so disappointed. I, I will say this about what they were doing with Chris Farley's character. Like he, you know, and of course, and Tommy Boy, you know, he's just that, you know, frat boy, you know, living off his dad, getting by off of him. And then he finally steps up, you know, and develops that way. But this movie, you can tell, you know, he really cares. He's a loving brother. You know, he's trying to help his brother get, you know, Tim Matheson get elected to governor. You know, very passionate. And he works at uh, a community uh, recreation center. You know, he's, you know, uh, he's a mentor to kids, plays football with them and everything. Yeah, so he's just a nice clumsy doofus. Uh, That's it, you know. He's just a clumsy doofus. He's well-intentioned. He just seems to be... He seems to be like a guy <laughs> trying to control a giant robot suit <laughs> and just can't get a handle on it. Oh, God. Imagine him being a Power Ranger. Good yeah. Lord. Another, another shot in Canada movie. Um, I just I don't know why I have so much affection for Canada. I just do. And I've never even been to Canada. Isn't that fucking weird? I don't even live that far away. Twice in my life I've lived close. I, I gotta do it soon. No, definitely. For sure. I got a thing mm. for girls who say a boot. <laughs> <laughs> was that a, was that a nod to Chasing Amy? Is that why that's from? I knew I knew it from something, but I couldn't remember. Oh what. no, it, no, it was definitely Jason Lee. And he and Ben Affleck were drawing. Ah. I remember now. Um, what is our next film? Okay, last film. I had to say the best for last, and I love this movie to this day. 
absolute great performances by Nathan Lane and pretty much everybody within this movie. Birdcage. God, what a knock it out of the park fucking hit. Um, Absolutely. MGM was on the ropes for a long time. And you and I have discussed this before that they were so close to bankruptcy and then they would be bankrupt and then someone would have to save their ass. And who would expect, like, get shorty and then this massive hits. And then, of course, Goldeneye in there as well. And they just saved the studio for probably another 10 years. And it's just these really unusual comedies. And Birdcage, yes was one of the very first um, foreign films to kind of break through to the mainstream. And when I say mainstream, it made like $10 million, which was a shock back in the late 70s. And um, there are three sequels, I think, or two sequels to The Birdcage, but I've heard they're just nowhere nearly as good. And um, this is a Francis Weber film, and you and I discussed that too, is that he he had done Three Fugitives, he had done the Three Men and the Baby... Um, out on a limb, the man with one red shoe. He did a bunch of movies in France that got adapted in America, and this is his peak. I mean, this movie's so unbelievably well handled, and it's aged very well because you know, with the way gay people were treated in the '90s, not necessarily the best portrayals, especially if they're a transgender or cross-dressing. And this just handles it so well because it's all basically from their viewpoint out instead of us focusing inward at something that we don't understand oh no absolutely and especially trying to see both viewpoints uh, of the families you know like you know what I'm looking for coincide or you know get nervous about meeting each other of course Calissa Flockhart you know you know, her talking to Gene Hackman and Diane Weiss, telling them, you know, a complete fabricated story of who they are. What? Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> but I think uh, I think Mike Nichols, the director, of course, the guy's legendary. Um, you know, graduate probably being his first real breakout as a director, but he is so skilled and, and delicate with how to handle this in the right way, and he doesn't ignore what's right in your face but he lets the he lets the story unfold in a natural way and also it's just fucking funny as hell sweet jesus nathan lane and hank azaria became names after this for a reason and they just i almost want to give credit to rob williams for sitting back and playing more of the uh quote-unquote straight man it's hard to say with a movie like this because when his character gay but he is so confident in and giving to his co-stars by letting them have the big laughs absolutely in fact yeah when he was offered he was originally offered Albert but he's like no no I mean you did want to try something different and yeah he helped set up Nathan Lane and again yes Nathan Lane oh geez from that the moment you see him in the dressing room getting over dramatic freaking out and accusing him of cheating oh god (laughs) oh man which he is right freaking out they, they did confirm that he's cheating on him with Hank Azaria, correct? No, he wasn't. Oh. It, it was just, he was just, it basically, uh, Val, you know, Robert Williams' son, you know, he was visiting, but he didn't oh, right. want Albert around. And, of course, he had to keep it a secret. Okay, yeah, so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I just, I, God, it's, 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 <laughs> it's hard not to think of. And Robert Williams, talking about it. Robert Williams looks good with a mustache. I mean, good. 
absolutely, yes. And again, he had a fantastic wardrobe. Yeah, there's only one scene where it's really like classic Rob Williams is the you know the whole Fosse 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 Madonna 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 that, that kind of look, uh, or that that scene or whatever. But in general, he sits back and he has the dry sense of humor and he's very funny. I just fucking Nathan Lane, god damn it, he's good. And I wish he had a better career. It's it's so strange to me that of course Mouse Hunt. I god I can't wait to discuss Mouse Hunt in the next season, but. I balls to the wall fucking hilarious and then like three years later he's on some cheap generic throwaway uh sitcom on nbc that nobody cared for and i really haven't seen him since well no that's not true producers fuck i forgot about the producers great in that and of course yes it is the actual musical version of you know the mel brooks film yeah also yeah he is more of a broadway actor i mean he did uh not too long ago i think he did angels in america Oh, okay. And, and I know I know for a while him and Matthew Reed teamed for the odd couple and where they would switch um every once in a while. The same thing that the uh, uh, um damn it, who did it? Not Jack Lemon and Walter Matthau. It was the other version where they would switch places. The T V uh, Tony Randall and um Jack Klugman. They would switch roles because they knew the roles so well, but it would give them some sort of break in the monotony of switching the characters, and that's what Nathan Lane and Matthew Broderick did. Personally, yeah, I find them to be absolutely unique uh, when it comes to Broadway. And of course, sadly, no, we don't see them enough on film. Yeah, I just which I, I, I wish we would. I adore this film, and we had an absolute riot. Me and my friends went to this, you know, three dudes, and um, you know, absolutely packed. And I remember the next day, uh, two of the two, so there's three of us, and two of us worked at Walmart, and. Someone asked us, like, what did we do yesterday? And I go, oh, we went and saw the birdcage. It was hilarious. And the guy kind of gave us a side eye. And this is small town Indiana where everybody's homophobic. And he was like, you did? Like, at first, like he, repressed. at first he was surprised that we even went and saw a movie about gay characters. And then he looked over at Dave and he goes, did you think that was funny? He goes, no, I didn't really like it. And I looked at him and go, what are you talking about? You were laughing your ass off. You, I want to go, you chicken shit. But, yes, he, he succumbs to pressure, peer pressure. Yeah, it just kind of sucks. That, that's how he uh, felt about that. I was like, you had a blast. Um, absolutely. I yeah. do want to say, Hank Azaria, I think, when it came to preparing for his character, uh, Agador sparked the most. <laughs> oh, gosh, it was hard not to say it like that. Yeah. I mean, uh, he's basically, when he was where he was looking for inspiration, he was looking towards his, um, his grandmother. Ah. And when he was basically, you know, acting out like her and like doing every, like seeing his performance in the movie, he's like, oh my gosh, I had in that, in that moment, I had, in some of those moments, I had become my grandmother. Oh. <laughs> you know, what I think it's really funny is Gene Hackman in this was brave enough to play stupid because the man had a notorious history of playing roles that were cool, confident, in control, powerful, powerful people. And in this one... He's like slightly delusional in how he comes off. He's like, oh yeah, I'm so smart and intelligent or whatever. I can handle these shows or whatever. No, he's dumb as a fucking brick and can barely hold a conversation. Sweet Jesus, he's a Ted Cruz of this movie. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Oh God, if anything, yeah. That's what. If anything, that's probably where Ted Cruz got inspiration. Jesus. Yeah, I mean. Damn it, Gene Hackman, look what you did. Yeah, and, and, and uh, I just, I wish Gene Hackman had done more roles like this where he was just kind of a confident dope. 
You know, and or, or like, okay, in Heartbreakers, I think, is the only other time I saw him play a character like that. But yeah, I, I absolutely think this is, that's an absolute classic, all-timer. Oh, absolutely. I know. Like, it's a must-own. I own it. Um, I had to buy it immediately when I saw it on Blu-ray. I'm like, yep, it's going in the basket. I know it's a little out of the budget. I don't care. I'm, I'm curious. <laughs> Someday I'm going to visit the, the original French versions, um, and I want to know what the sequels are about. And I remember, like, I think the second one has spies in it, and a lot of people said that was kind of unnecessary to the characters to throw spies shit into it. But I, I'm just curious to see what they're like. Yeah, no. I, uh, like, wait, what? That's yeah. Like some, like if anything that sounded almost like a kindergarten cop sequel yeah i don't know uh yeah francis weber is an interesting director because it seemed like a lot of times he had brilliant ideas but sometimes his execution wasn't the greatest uh so that is it for this episode um i can't remember what i told you for the next one but it's gonna be a wild ride i like now to more to make sure i got a few comedies maybe one drama and a couple action adventure kind of stuff in there we don't do horror usually because i save that for someone else you're not a big horror guy are you it really does depend. I mean, I'm, I'm all. I love the thing. Still freaks me out. I love the fly. Uh, let's see. I did like Hellraiser. Well, as a child, growing up, yeah, like Freddy Krueger and Child and uh, Chucky scare the shit out of me. Yeah. So, yeah you, if, we, if we do discuss horror, it's really rare, and it's usually kind of like the big studio stuff. Like we had, a, we had a great time talking to Bram Stoker's Dracula. Oh god. Yeah. Man, so that. That is, my, that is actually my favorite vampire film. Yeah, so that that's usually the genre we leave out because I saved that for my friend Kersey. But in general, we're just going to keep chugging along through 1996. Thank you, everybody, for sticking with us for the last, I mean, we just passed nine years, uh, two, two, three months ago. I forgot to even bring it up on air. So thank you, everybody, for the last nine years, and onward ho! <laughs> we're almost to a whole decade, man! I can't believe I've known you so long. This is crazy. <laughs> I'm only crying because I sat on my balls. <laughs> All right, everybody, we're out. <laughs>